Listen. Welcome to the Dotcast from Nine Dots. Nine Dots is the online learning community for wedding photographers, and if you want to know more, head over to nine-dots.co. Hello friends, my name is Adam Johnson and I am one of the co-founders of Nine Dots, along with the legends that are Andy Gaines and Rahul Kona. This is the second series of Dotcast episodes. I've been chatting to photographers from the Nine Dots community about business, art and life. Today's chat is with Manchester-based Neil Redfern. I've been friends with Neil since I started as a wedding photographer back in 2010, and we reminisced during the episode about how important it was that we found a really friendly community of local wedding photographers in those early days, partly thanks to Twitter. I'll chat to Neil about his evolution into an off-camera flash master with his own unique style, and he has some interesting insights into what sort of images he puts out on his social media, especially since trading became a big part of his business. We'll also talk about his successful YouTube channel where he's already built a following of over 25,000 subscribers and how he got started there. What I love the most about this episode is how Neil finishes by talking about his love for the creative process, rather than any recognition, likes, followers or subscribers, and how he's driven by an innate need to capture things to look back on in the future. It's a really interesting and very inspiring viewpoint and something we could all learn from. Neil was also due to be presenting at the 2029 Dots Gathering, which has been postponed to November 2021, and I'm glad to say that Neil will still be there with us. Check out more about the Nine Dots Gathering at nine-dots.co slash gathering. Any comments or suggestions for the Dotcast, or if you want to ask a question to be answered on a future episode by me or one of our guests, drop us a message on Instagram or Facebook, or send a good old-fashioned email to hello at nine-dots.co. Anyway, on with the episode. Knowing me, Adam Johnson, knowing you, Neil Redfern, aha. Aha! That is a lifelong dream achieved right there. For both of us. Yeah. <laughs> for both of us. I mean, I, I, I even mentioned to you that I was gonna, I was gonna use that as my intro to the, to, to these podcasts, and I told you, like, I, I'm expecting nine out of ten people to reply with silence. Oh, I, I don't know if that would be a good or a bad thing, though, because I quite like the fact that it might be now a bit of an underground secret club. Um, because back in the day, like, everyone would have realised what that meant. It's true, but the trouble was the first one I recorded was I don't know if you listened to it. It's Heather Jowett. I, I did. I listened to it last night. Yeah, which to be fair, like being American, a bit of a disadvantage. A little bit, but I th- I thought she'd be more into British comedy than she was. But then I hit the like the massive roadblock of how do you explain Alan Partridge in words to somebody that isn't, it's almost like trying to explain a, a color to a blind person. It is, and, and the, the ironic thing is as well. I was thinking after I heard that was thinking, if I was to sit down and explain Alan Partridge to somebody who'd never seen him, I don't think I could make him sound very funny. I don't yeah. know what, what it is that makes, makes him funny. Like, and and that's, maybe that's the genius of it. But yeah, he, he was a big part. <laughs> I'm really fanboying now. He wasn't a big f- part of my childhood. But um, yeah, he, honestly, like, I, don't, I think it's one of the, the, the one comedies that I would never get bored of. But anyway, this is not an, this is not an Alan Partridge appreciation <laughs> podcast. Shame. I know, yeah. <laughs> Well, it is now. Uh, but no, it's great to have you on. Thanks for being on the Dotcast. Uh, it's been, obviously, um, you and me, uh, we've got a lot in common in our, in our kind of wedding photography life, especially, but also in life in general, both from Manchester. Yeah. Both support the correct football team. Yeah. Obviously, that's Manchester United for anybody, anybody listening who doesn't know. Indeed. Both, both massive fans of the city of Manchester and being from Manchester. Yeah, why not? Both became wedding photographers pretty much exactly the same time. 
Correct. I think, yeah. I think, were, I think you were just before me. So I think you started in 2008, 2009 time. Uh, the first wedding was 2006. Although I don't know if I could really even count that because that was like one or two weddings that, that year for friends. And then started sort of actually shooting for people who I didn't know about 2007, 2008. Yeah. Yeah. And then I, and I started 2009 ish. But I remember, I don't know, I think it was, the, it was the heyday of Twitter, wasn't it, back then? And I think. Yes. Yeah. Uh, um, and the funny thing is, like, I've not used Twitter for years now, but if I look at my Twitter account, I've actually tweeted loads. And I was like, when's all this happened? And back in the day, I, I forget this, but maybe you were the same. I've been tweeting like a lot. Yeah. And I have no no real memory of it. Yeah. Well, back back then, Facebook wasn't particularly conversational. Was, there was no Facebook Messenger, obviously. Um, I don't even I don't think WhatsApp existed. So I think to, if you wanted to actually chat to people, Twitter was the only real way to do that in the industry. You know, in like to get to yeah. get mates in the industry or whatever. That was the only real way to do it. And I remember meeting loads of people uh, back then. And I think that's how because we had a really good community in the Northwest, uh, definitely back then, especially. And I think that's pretty much how we all first connected was Twitter. It, it must have been. It must have been. I mean, I, I can remember when I first went full time and I used, cause I used to have a proper job, like you, same as you, working in an office. Um, and then when I went full time, I remember thinking, oh, I don't know anyone. So I need to start like getting in contact with people who, who, I, who, who I know, uh, uh, like I look up to and things like that and try and sort of get a little community around me because as, otherwise I'd be completely isolated. And I was using email then just to contact people like, oh, hi, I love your work. Will you come and meet me for lunch? And um, that was, as far as I, that was the very first way that I could get in contact with people. I don't think it was other ways. Like you say, after that, it would have been Twitter. And I remember I did send this, this I could get, really get arrested for this now. I was sending DMs to, to people, to, to a florist friend of mine, saying, do you fancy meeting up for lunch? And like just over, over Twitter, like just ran, a random guy saying, I, uh, I work in weddings, do you want to meet up for lunch or something? And it's, yeah, weird now. I don't think you're going to get arrested for DMing a florist on Twitter, mate. So you can probably calm down. True, yeah. true. But I, it's something I just wouldn't, well, I don't think I'd do that now. Like just yeah, literally yeah. out the blue saying like, hiya, do you want to meet up? Yeah. It's totally different though. I just think it's totally different now. But but just on that, like we we ended up because of that, really. I don't know what if it was a fluke or whether people had, were lucky in other like regions of the country or beyond, but we ended up with a really tight knit group of about 20 of us didn't we back then that we yeah it was really nice and i and i, and I don't I, I say i i don't know if we were lucky or it was it was just a different time i don't know because back then again like it, it wasn't as easy to be social online was it and i think that was probably the, the, the key thing um so yeah it was really good and we'd obviously like you say we'd meet up every month quite messy drinking nights and everything but that was good and like i i still you know that's how obviously me and you got uh, first, like became friends and stuff, and yeah, I still like remember that time like fondly, and I'm really pleased it happened because the yeah. friendships made then still hold true now, and yeah, they do, and it's it's all come down to meeting people in person. I think that's the thing that is different now. You know, it's not it's not really I don't think it really counts for the friendship if, unless you know somebody in person. No, I mean you're making us both sound like quite social beings here, but oh god, one of my favourite <laughs> is that we met up at some kind of champagne bar in Manchester one time. And neither you or me wanted to really be that, that social and ended up just sat together in the corner for the night, just having a chat and, and hoping people came to talk to us, which nobody did. And the thing is that this is what one of the weird areas that I do think we're very, very similar, but I don't think you'd realise it first off because obviously, you know, you, you've got nine dots now and uh, you have the gathering where you've got like, I don't know, 100, 150 people come in and you're one of the people who everyone wants to speak to and you're there and 
being social and everything. But I've always thought that's, that, that I don't think that's really you. But yeah. you can sort of turn it on for a time. And yeah. then afterwards, you'll probably be really tired. And, I, and I've like doing the bits and bobs on YouTube, but I'm a massive introvert. So it almost doesn't make any sense, does it? And like you say, my, my absolute nightmare scenario is going to, oh, I'm going to have to use the word networking thing, and walking into a room not knowing anyone. Oh, that filled me with anxiety. I, I hate that. I, if yeah. I know one person, I'll gravitate to them and stick to them like a leech because um, I, I don't feel comfortable just walking up to people saying, Hi, I'm Neil. Uh, oh, yeah. <laughs> I'm mean, turning into a therapy session now. Why, but yeah. why, why do you think this is, though? Because it's not, we're not actually that unusual. You speak to a lot of wedding photographers, especially, and you find out that a lot of people are introverted or a bit socially awkward. I wonder why that's a thing amongst... I bet it's, I bet it's not just wedding photographers. I bet it's photographers in general. I, I would... Yeah, oh, without a doubt. And, and like you say, uh, from my experience as well, most people definitely are sort of more on the introvert scale. I don't know why that is. I think it's because... To do this job, although we're talking about the, the, the more social aspects, a lot of it is very isolated. So if you were someone who needed that interaction with people every single day, being a wedding photographer isn't probably the best job for you because you're getting that interaction like, like one out of six, seven days or something. Um, but, I, but I don't know because the actual job of being a wedding photographer in many ways, you do need to be come out of your shell a little bit. And I just think we can probably all do that for a very small amount of time, but then default back to normal. Um, I have done a personality test online once and it was freakishly accurate where it says things like that, that you can become a different person for a certain amount of time. The example it gave me was being on the stage. And I remember doing, a, I did a workshop um, a few years ago now. You've, in fact, I think you may have been there. Um, one that I did for charity, just a mess about one. It wasn't a serious thing. And I, and I had like about 50 people turn up, which was amazing. And I remember first arriving, this in the city centre in Manchester, arriving at the venue sort of setting up the laptop and the projector and everything. And I'm fine doing that because that's, I've got a little job. So there's a lot of people sort of stood around mingling and chatting away and everything. And then I think, right, I'm set up now, but it doesn't start for the half an hour. What do I do now? And I just, and I left. I just went, left and went to a little Tesco and uh, bought some food and then, and then walked around the city centre whilst my workshop was going on yeah. and then arrived at 5.84 and then just started. And, I, and as soon as I started, hi, I'm Neil, blah, 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 I was fine. And then it's lunchtime, and then it's like, oh god, and and it's weird. It's such a weird thing. It's like the on and the off. Yeah, and um, yeah, yeah I, I still struggle now. But I just come to terms actually who I am. Yeah, and, I, I mean, I always think uh, weddings, especially. I think I have like a character that I get into. Yeah, like, totally. like a wedding photographer character, and that and that's what I think. I'm able to be really extroverted and social at weddings a lot of the time. Uh, especially if I get off on the right foot in the morning, usually sometimes yeah. I find if I get off, if I don't get off on the on the right foot in the with the like the girls in the morning or whatever, that I find it much harder throughout the rest of the day. But hundred percent, yeah. The answer is good in in like bridal prep. I'm, I'm I'm on top of the world then, and I can I can yeah you know, be be funny all, the rest of the day and and like get people bantering and all sorts. But yeah, it's funny that isn't it the whole character thing. But I think being on the stage is is good uh, is a good example for it. Uh, yeah, but I think we're very very similar. Uh, characters on that type of things but you mentioned um i mean let's start let's talk first i mean one thing that became massive in your work quite early on i think is flash yes like, yeah i think you were you were doing like flash before it was cool to do flash that's what, that's what <laughs> i'm gonna go there and uh what like was that a conscious decision stylistically or just because because you i think you, you're quite into the technical side of photography as well like me and was it like the attraction to like being a bit more technical with your work that, that started you off in Flash or or what? I've, I've loaded that question with so many options, but yeah, you can answer however you like. Yeah, you have, and, and I'll, I'll I'll take one. Yeah, I, I think it was more 
I just found it fascinating how you could make a photograph look very different to what your eyes see. And I always felt as though that would help me stand out a little bit more. Um, so, and it's still the case now because I always say this, like when, I, when I'm talking to people about flash, like flash now is not my favorite part of photography whatsoever. Not it's moments like it's documentary hundred percent, but the flash has always paid the bills. So I'm always very conscious of that. So it, it's always been the fascination with trying to create something that is different, that sets you apart. And part of that is because I like those photographs. I'm not going to lie, but part of it as well is because it does help me, I think, set me apart a little bit and give me a bit of a USB. Um, and that's why I sort of go down that road a little bit more. But yeah, I've always liked the fact that it's like, oh, I took this picture. The bride and groom won't know. A bit different now because obviously it's such a, a sort of common sort of um, thing that people do. But like going back seven, eight years, yeah, you could take a photograph and think, the bride and groom won't know what this looked like. And I found that quite fascinating. Plus, especially because, again, like, especially a few years ago, it really was a, like a differentiator. That was why I, I definitely like enjoyed, enjoyed using it. Yeah. But I mean, I, I, I mean, I, I, I know that when I, when you talk about flash now, you're really talking about your portraiture, aren't you? But I remember you were doing like multiple off camera flashes for speeches and things before anybody else really was. Cause I remember speaking to you. I remember, like I used to love you looking at your speech pictures and thinking, "Why is how does you Neil? Old, how does Neil? Yeah, 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 I am now. Yeah, yeah. Uh, like I, to, I remember thinking, going back a few years, I remember thinking, how does Neil always get perfect light in all his venues every every speeches? Well, you're very kind, mate. Five's in the post. Yeah, I, <laughs> I, again, I, this this sounds really awful. It sounds like a get out answer. I don't really remember how stuff like that would have started. Yeah, um, I've been using flash for, for like you say for speeches now since for so long that I don't remember a first point like oh I'm going to do this. I, I, it's probably more out of pure necessity. That's how things tend to happen for me. I tend to figure out things that work quite well because I'm. If we can swear on here, basically I'm in the shit because <laughs> yeah. I started shooting again. This is this is awful to admit. I started shooting manual during a wedding ceremony, literally. But I was shooting a ceremony, the Bella Vistra in Rochdale, shout out, um, and shooting into bright windows and thinking, why is my camera, which would have been in probably in P at the time, I'm sure, showing me a silhouette of the bride and groom and literally panicking, thinking I need to sort this out right now. And that's when I put the camera onto manual, literally that time. It was it's crazy to look back on. And with the speed, with the flashes with the speeches i dare say my guess would be i was shooting speeches and thinking why is it all so dark i'm struggling let's put a flash on it, it probably was that i say i i, I don't really go into it maybe a bit different now but back then i wouldn't have thought ahead it would have been like this isn't going right i need to sort this out and it would have been through pure panic basically i mean that, i think that's how a lot of people uh initially get into flash isn't it just be just as a as like an experimentation phase. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And the most common thing that people say in my workshops is like, oh, I, I do use off-camera flash, but it's like a lot of it is look, which, you know, it's probably the same for all of us still, that, that, that every now and again you'll get a good shot and that good shot sees you through to try it again and try it again. But, yeah, a lot of it is like people feel it's a bit more hit and miss. Yeah, but I think a lot of, a lot of it, especially from my perspective now, I reckon you'll agree, is once you, once you kind of find your recipe, 
you're not you're not really experimenting all that much. You kind of know it. it's almost like taking a normal picture once you once you're really comfortable with it and not as because a lot of people the reason a lot of people are a bit afraid of flash I think is just a bit because they've not tried it enough to know that it's not that it's quite predictable once you once you have certain ways of doing it you can it, it can be as predictable as working with natural light. That's so true. That's so so true. Yeah, and I and I have go to setups which I just use wherever you could say now right oh the, you're going to shoot speeches stay over there. All I'd need to know is do it can I bounce off the ceiling and that that's that would just then dictate the one question I the one decision I have to make in regards to the setup once I know that I know the setup it would be now so like you say it, it's extremely predictable and that is what makes it so so good because then you don't really have to think anymore it's just like you don't have to worry about what the light's doing it's just it's going to be the same all the time so you can just concentrate on shooting it's a really good point yeah yeah but do you think it's tricky now uh because obviously, I would say you, you show a lot of, and and you talked about it before because it is kind of your, your unique selling point in a way. But you show a lot in your portfolio, social media, all the rest of it. Like you show a lot of the what you'd call like a Neil Redfern flash portrait. But I, but like you're saying, it's still it's still only going to be a minor element of the day. But and this is a bigger debate, really. But like I think in a lot of ways, like these these artier pictures that maybe, arguably, wouldn't stand the test of time like the moments will from that wedding. Oh, they don't. 100% but, they but don't. They're the images and the, it's those stuff that gets you the bookings and, in a way, gives you the unique selling point that, is, that means you can have a slightly higher price tag. So it's kind of like a double-edged sword, in a way, because you have to take them, and that means people expect them. But realistically, what they want out of the other end of the wedding is probably, you know, that, that picture's going to impress them uh, to start with. But, like, I guess my question is, do you find people just expect those pictures now and you, and you kind of have to conjure them up or do you still enjoy conjuring them up or just sometimes does it feel a bit like a ball and chain? A bit of both, really, but I, I, I think you absolutely hit the nail on the head when you said that, but yet yeah, I have to take them because I, I, I feel the need. And often it's not, that I don't think it's the bride and groom on the day that are putting the pressure on me to take them. I think it's in my own head. I, I can't leave a wedding without thinking, right, what's my finale shot? Um, now that's not because the, often the bride and groom are dancing it they don't really care but I, I've got this this thing in me which is like I have to take something because if I don't I've let them down and I've let me down if you like and then I've also let like, I've, I also need content to show the next couple as well um, but what you said which I think is so so true is that the, those photographs are for now they, they have a shelf life I believe of maybe six months to a year in terms, from the Brad and Groom point of view, they're probably like, they want to look at those first, maybe put them on Facebook because they are a little bit different. Um, and and they are something that's going to get attention, basically. Yeah. But without, I don't have any illusions whatsoever. There is no sort of couple who are going to sit back when they're 80 on a park bench looking back at the photographs and think, oh, look at that photograph at Neil Grid with the fractal filter. That is never going to happen. But what hopefully will happen is, you know, it, it, it's it's very cheesy and cliche, but it's so true that it'll be the moment, the the real moment where we've had no say in that moment whatsoever, which stand the test of time. But I always think, what well, you can't, oh, maybe you can. I, I try to insinuate this in say inquiry meetings that. So I always think that like the, the, the flash photographs are are a, a bait, if you like, to get couples interested. And often that's when couples do inquire, they'll say, oh, we really like the, the pictures that we've seen on Instagram. And Instagram, like four out of five pictures is a portrait, um, that sort of thing. And then I spend my inquiry meetings talking to them about the importance of moment. But I, I think couples sometimes almost like need educators to why the moments are so important. Because well, what you can't basically say is, 
look, you're going to want that photograph of you with your dad because, you know, in 30 years' time, you might not be here. And you, you can't really say, let's, let's you know, contract the moments because everyone's going to die. It's a little bit negative. But, but I think that's, I try and insinuate the importance of more an inquiry meeting. So it's very much two sides. The, 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 the portraits are, very, are the bait. And then I, I spend time, spend talk about the portraits. But for me, I always have the fear that if I show the four out of five shots are documentary images, one, I think everyone shoots documentary these days. Documentary used to be the niche, but now it's not. Now everyone's shooting documentary. So portraits are more the niche now. And I think that sort of helps me because even though people might want documentary, I'm still, if, those want, if people want portraits, I'm probably standing out a little bit more to those people because I'm in a smaller pool now. Um, but I, I still feel as though like, if I was just to shoot all portraits and nail the portraits and have no moments, I've massively failed at that wedding. Yeah. Um, to me, the, I, I'm very aware that the, the, the portraits are superficial. The, the real substance will always be the moments. But as I say, I don't think Brian Grooms realised that at the time that they're getting married. It's life that tells you that. Teaches oh, yeah, that. yeah, definitely. But, that's, what, that's what I was getting at, really. I mean, I love the fact that you, your inquiry meetings start off by going, Hi, I'm Neil Redfern. Just to let you know, everybody at your <laughs> wedding is going to die. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, and then get him, get him on the off on the right foot. Yeah, it's brilliant. And then they, after they start crying, that, I, I, I have tissues ready, and it's a oh, truth hurts. Let, now let's get on with it. <laughs> Tough look. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, but I agree with you. It's, it's so funny that you say that. I've never really thought of it in that sense. That do- documentary was once once the niche, and I definitely remember those days. Like I, I definitely. Oh yeah, I can know everybody. Everybody's website was portraits. Yeah all the time and then documentary became a bit more of a thing um i mean it was always there obviously but i think people saw it as being the filler yeah to to the portrait whereas i say now it's almost not cool to take portraits you know and and i and i'm still as i said before i'm still massive will always be the belief now like through tyler mainly through the first gathering when listening to tyler's words of wisdom um i've always taken people i've been tyler so like I, documentary is is the be all and end all when it comes to photography, really, especially to wedding photography. But, but yeah, it, it, it is something that everybody does. So if you look at this purely from a marketing point of view and a business point of view, do you want to be in a pool with like where ninety percent of the people are, or do you want to be in a pool where ten percent of the people are um, in terms of your competition? And if you can excel within the ten, you know, where you've only got ten percent of the competition, then that's where you can stand out a little bit more. Yeah, I mean, I remember I've, I've always kind of had a focus in my work on documentary, even though I kind of started off like focusing mainly on the portraits, quite quickly realized my passion was in the documentary. Mm-hmm. But I remember working with a, a videographer who you and me know really well. And I remember vividly like shooting a wedding with him and it got to portrait time. And he said something like, okay, now this is where you earn your money. And I thought, <laughs> what do you think I've been doing for the last like <laughs> five hours? And what do you think I'm going to do for the next five after this half hour? Like it, was, it just, it really brought home to me that that's how a lot of people see wedding photographers is like, we just turn up for the day. We, we do our very best to like snap away and then we get a bit of time to do actual photography and then we do our best to snap away again for the rest of the day. And that's, de- that, that's definitely changed. Oh, it has. Yeah. And, and I don't think, I think this is one of the problems that bride and grooms maybe have when they're looking at photographers that they don't realize the skill that is required to take good documentary because there is then, if, if you if you cut off an off-camera flash photograph with with prisms and crystals and all that going on, I don't I don't think a couple will look at that picture and think my uncle could take that. Yeah. But if you have a photograph of 
someone crying, you know, you're in the right place, you're in the right, everything's right. And it, you, you've basically that photograph includes 10 years experience, which you can't really tell on the face of it. There is this sort of, uh, it's easy to look at that and think anyone could take that because it's just, it's just a inverted commas snap because it's all natural light and all, everything like that. And that's one of the, the difficulties, I think, that we as people who like taking documentary photographs have, which is how do you sort of try and get across to couples that it takes a lot of skill to do that well? Because like you said in that example, it's easy to think that you are just sort of, I hate the word snap, but like snapping away. Yeah, yeah. Because you've not got all you, you've not got lights set up, you've not got umbrellas and soft boxes and everything. So you're just taking pictures, basically spraying and praying. Where you're not, you're 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 composing, you're looking for the light, but it's not. It doesn't seem immediately obvious that you're doing that. So it is it is harder, I think, for couples to differentiate. Yeah, and before we move on as well, it's 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 harder as well to to stand out, like you say, but not just stand out in a, in like a, a like high level marketing sense, but also with the way that probably our most of our customers consume uh wedding photography for the first time on things like instagram if so you, true if you're just showing like you know confetti first dance uh bride, bride's dad having emotional reactions that's 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 probably like 80 percent of everything they're seeing like getting hit in the face with on instagram so if you've got pictures, yeah and it doesn't have to be portraits uh but if you've got pictures like if you if you if you're just doing documentary you can still stand out you can still find your you know like uniqueness i guess but um standing out is so important but let, so like still like staying on the same vein of like the flash portraits the standout stuff obviously a few years ago now and I, you'll tell me how long but you started teaching so teaching became a big part of of your kind of world in of photography but like now most of your workshops are flash based yes and yeah. and i think having though having that element of like like unique selling point again that kind of to your work is what's helped you get probably get into te- the teaching side of it as well. Yeah, it has. And, and that also feeds into why a lot of what I show is the portrait stuff, because I, I'm sort of at this like constant battle in my head that when I show pictures publicly, especially on Instagram, who am I showing them to? And I've almost made the decision that my Instagram is 70, 30 sort of pointed towards photographers who potentially may come on workshops, follow me on YouTube and what, what have you, and things like that. Um, and that's another reason why a lot of what I show is the portrait side, because I don't feel as though the majority of people who look at my work on Instagram are couples. Obviously, couples feed into that, which is really nice, and I hope, you know, I'd, I'd like to have more. But it's certainly that all the comments that I ever receive are certainly from photographers. Um, so that sort of feeds into that. And, and again, it's one of those self-fulfilling prophecies that if, if you know that what's getting you attention and is doing well, again, for your business is, is a particular style of photograph, that's what I sort, of, I sort of feed that more. And then before you know it, that, that's become what you do. So it, again, it's not ever really been a hugely conscious decision, but it's become very obvious that if I were to stop showing those images and start going down another road, then it would impact a part of my business, which I love doing now. And it's a big, big part of the business. So it all sort of feeds in, but it is a, it's a constant struggle between who am I trying to show these images to? Because I have two very, very different markets. You know, one, one is like, say, photographers, and the other is obviously couples who sort of are my bread and butter. So, yeah, but I mean, you say, you, say, you say it's a split audience, but I, at the same time, going back to what you said earlier, 
it probably isn't that split. You know, you just what you've done is you're you're, you're showing those like unique selling point images. So the couples who see it are still going to pick up on it and see something different, and then buy into that side of your work, and then you know see see that that's the difference between you and the, the other thirty photographers that they've just googled or found on Instagram that might then push them to book with you and spend a little bit more maybe as well. So maybe it is a split audience, but maybe it isn't. But I think you're dead right. Yeah, like the advice you're giving, which is to kind of know your audience and and go for that audience, and you've you decided that mainly that's photographers. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Without a doubt, and and. I say I've almost sort of made that decision maybe a year or two ago when it certainly when it comes to Instagram. My, my website and blog, when I actually update it, is different. That's when I, I will show a lot more photographs in a blog post. But my Instagram, I'm very, very selective about. Um, and I, I only post maybe like once every two or three days because I don't have enough content of, of, of the quality and the style and the originality that I would like to post to post more than that. Um, and part of that is because I made the decision that what I show on Instagram has to stand out. And I'll be honest, I can't, I'm going for the attention. Like, and I, and it's funny because if I look at my Instagram and I say, I would say four out of five shots that I show on Instagram are off camera flash portraits or off camera flash photographs in some sense. They will do what I would say they, they do okay. If I show a moment, I, I'm literally lucky if I get a quarter of the likes. Yeah. There is a huge dis, uh, disparity in that. And, it, and it's, yeah. it's not just a one-off. It is a very – I can tell. I, I've, I've, I've sort of developed a bit of a knack of knowing what will work and what won't. But every now and again, because I feel like I don't want it to be purely portraits, I'll throw in a documentary shot. But I do that knowing it won't do as well. And, and I don't like this about social media because that means that social media is dictating what I'm not always posting what I love. I'm posting what I think will do well for my business. And, and that doesn't sit well with me. Um, but it's something that I, 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 I do and I need to sort of get better at trying to sort of become a bit more selfish, I suppose, and posting what I feel I prefer the most rather than what the algorithm will like. I think it's the best. And it's the most intelligent way to use it as well. I think because you know in your media like you know you've got to understand instagram is mostly looked at as tiny little pictures on a tiny little screen yeah so yeah like moments are never gets especially moments with any subtlety which is to me is that they're the, they're the, uh, like moments that have like some intelligence and some subtlety and some and all that kind of stuff into them just blend in on, on instagram because people aren't people aren't spending the time they're just scrolling through really fast yeah for anyone and i think that's really sad podcast and i'm making a hand signal with a <laughs> the screen and nobody can see that but you're calling me something else then. I like, um, I like this because it's almost like a, a, a trip of social media through the ages. So I'm going to move on from Instagram now uh, because so your kind of workshops evolved into the Neil Redfern YouTube extravaganza. That's what I'm going to call it. <laughs> I, could, oh, I quite like that. I might, I might nick that. I think you should just name your, name your channel that. Yeah, yeah, sounds good. Uh, yeah. How, would... how, does, how does a introverted uh, person become decide to want to put video content out on a, on the biggest video sharing social media site in the world it, it's a really good question and one that i would two years ago if you had said to me would you make videos where you're actually talking to the camera and then putting that public like forget that i'm, I'm way too shy and introverted for that um but it all started i, I, I think the beginning of 2018 uh, it's been two and a half years I've been doing it now. And I'm in a group called the Magmod community. Obviously, a, a lot of what I do re- uses Magmod equipment. So I've been quite sort of like uh, active in their Facebook group. And 
somebody asked a question. I, was, I would always post pictures in there. And then I started posting a little behind the scenes in there as well, which tended to do quite well. So you see the before and the after. And I, that's what I always enjoyed about Flash, like trying to think, like, this is a, a very, you know, crappy, sort of unattractive, in, in the conventional sense, scene. Um, but you can create this image from it. And I started showing those, like, little before and afters. And somebody just asked me a, about a particular photograph. How did you do this? So it's like, oh, and, and I'd write out the explanation, but it was taking forever. So I thought what would be easier is I could just talk, narrate, basically, like my answer as to how I did a particular shot and just put that. And I thought, right, well, I'll do that. Made it into a video. I literally, this, this what I'm going to say now, all sounds fake. And I absolutely promise you 100% it is the truth. I was like, right, okay, where do I post this? Um, I'll post it on YouTube and I'll, and I'll just post the link in the group. I didn't even at that point know what sub- that you could even subscribe to people on YouTube. I swear it sounds ridiculous, but YouTube to me back then was literally just, you'd look at like videos of cats or if you've got like a leaky tap, you, you know, you just, you just Google how to fix it, uh, YouTube how to fix it. That was all I ever used it for. Now I watch YouTube more than TV. I don't even watch TV, but I consume YouTube so much now. But at then at that point, it was I didn't know a thing about it. It was just a way of me sharing a video, and that was it. And then a couple of days later, I was getting these notifications like so and so subscribe, subscribe. It's like, oh, that's different. Um, so again, on, only f- the only place that video was ever played was the Magmod community. I then did another one. Um, in fact, I think it was when I was um, I was away at the time. I was shooting a, a wedding in Hong Kong, and that's where I think I made my first video, if I remember right. And then I did another one. Been in, in the hotel room because I know I want at this point the important thing to say is I wasn't videoing myself, it was just narration with with photo with basically the before and after photographs. There is no way that I thought I'm ever going to show my face on camera, that would have scared the living daylights out of me. So, the first 30 videos that I made because then I did start to understand a little bit more that people were enjoying this and I started liking the process, but still, the first 30 videos that are on my channel now do not show my face at all. Um, and it would just be me. I'd write out a script and I'd literally just lean into, again, you can't see this, I know on the podcast, I'd lean into my, um, into my laptop and just say, for this photograph, I used two speed lights. And, and it was really, really boring. Like <laughs> and there was nothing in it at all. It was just literally me reading the script. And that's how it started. And then as you slowly get more confident, I then start, and I, more so, I started watching YouTube as well. And I don't mean photography YouTube channels. I mean, just, just YouTubers. You sort of start thinking, oh, I like what they're doing. And they're talking a little bit more upbeat. So you then start, start integrating that a little bit more. Um, and then I started going outside and talking to the camera. But I will still only ever do it when I'm on my own. I've, even now, I, I, can, I can talk into a camera and I can sort of um, commentate now when I'm shooting. But I still feel a bit weirded out if there's people around. The, 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 the videos that I do, which are the most popular, which is like how I shot this, and I'm talking through every stage of how I, how I created a particular photograph, there's usually just a model there, um, and maybe the odd other person, literally one or two people. I've done a couple of videos at workshops where I've got like five or six people watching me, and that's quite strange. But even now, that's weird. But the thing about... To answer your question, Abby, you answered a long question. I'll give you an even longer answer, which is like, <laughs> what helps being an introvert is that there's no one there when I'm making the video. And that is the difference. If I was like, 
you know, make them in front of a live studio audience, I'd freeze and I'd hate it. But because it's just me and at most say one other person, then I've just, I can, I can do that because it's, you don't realize that other people might watch this. You're just thinking, yeah. it's only me in a room just talking. And, you know, and, and the other person who is often the model is bored anyway. They're not bothered. <laughs> they're not listening. He could say anything. So you can get away with it basically. Yeah. And, that, and that's the reason it, it's all down to the fact that the, the videos themselves are recorded virtually like in isolation. And that's how you can do it being an introvert. How many subscribers have you got now? Uh, it's, it's getting on for 25,000 now, which is crazy. It's absolutely crazy. So you're making, making a fortune from YouTube, obviously per year now. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's why I'm still driving around in a Vauxhall. <laughs> um, the actual, so the way that YouTube works is you, if you reach a thousand subscribers and 4,000 hours watch time, which it, it, it's not easy to do that, but it's certainly achievable if, if you're consistent that people, when you, you get into YouTube in a big way, you realize that you, you have to please the algorithm and you do that often, not by video quality, unfortunately, because I've, I put out what I would say is some of my better stuff recently. And, that, and that's only because experience the more videos you do the like with anything in life the more things you the more practice you have the better your content becomes the better you become at every part of the video making process so i'd like to think that what i'm doing say the past two or three months is potentially at the best stuff that i've done but my views were by far higher say this time last year and it's that's frustrating and a lot of that is just due to you've you basically somehow you don't you might not even be aware how you you sort of please the algorithm, and it's a it's a dark art as to how you do that, and no one really knows the answer. But you become a slave to it, and um, that's that that becomes good and bad. Like I'm producing a video a week at the moment, which is tough to do, but I'm doing that to please the algorithm because if I know if I have a gap of a month, the next video that I put out, almost regardless of how good it is, will will probably flop. Oh, it won't do as well because I'm being punished because I've not been posting consistently. So you become a slave to it. Um, but the, so that's how that part of it works. So but you get paid through when we're looking at it from purely YouTube point of view through through the ads. I say, and that's where you have to have the four thousand hours watch time and a thousand subscribers. But the ad sense is very small, and it all depends on what sex you're in as well. Um, this time next year, Rodders. Yeah, we'll see. Yeah, that'll be that will be good. <laughs> Um, but for the, the thing with YouTube, I just love the process of it now. Yeah. Um, there's something about it which I really enjoy. And, I, and I've tried to figure out what that is on, on a deeper level. And I think it's why I like getting into photography, why I enjoy photography as well. And it's due to the fact that I can create something that I am proud of put that out there into the world and then step away from it. And that does the talking for me. And that's why I enjoy photography because you can create something, you can spend time trying to get something right. And then you don't have to sell it. If that makes sense, you have to try and put it out there yourself and say, this is why I think this is good. Or this is why I think I'm good at this. It's like, you put that out there, you step back from it, close the door on it and then just see how it goes. And, and that is the reason I like the, the YouTube videos as well, that, I can craft, craft something, then put it out there, but then that does it, it sort of like lives and dies on its own. Then I'm not involved in that anymore. The video has to stand on its own two feet, and that's why I enjoy it. I think there's a lot, there's an incredible amount of wisdom in everything you just said. So obviously, one thing that starts from it is that 
you didn't try and become a YouTuber. It's almost like no, you, no. You put a video out and were surprised that, and then you put another one, and then you put another one because there was kind of an apparent demand for it, rather than going right this week. I'm going to try and become a YouTuber because I don't think I don't think it would have worked the other way around. And the other the other thing that's amazing, I mean, Gary Vayner. I don't know if you know Gary Vaynerchuk much. Oh, Gary V. Sorry, it's a surname to throw. Yes. Where he transformed his family's wine business by starting a YouTube channel for it, basically. And he was saying that he basically even now he makes it, all his videos as if one person's going to see him. Like he doesn't make videos now any differently because millions of people see him. He still makes them as if it was that very first video when he didn't know if anyone was going to watch it. And he was like, the biggest thing I can tell anybody who's trying to make content is don't try and make content for the viewers. Make content because you're that that's what you feel like is good content. And you, yeah, hundred percent. And the other thing, the other massive thing, and I harp on about this all the time is. Anything you do, you've got to do it for the love of the process. You can't do it because you want the attention of the out of the back end of it or for whatever product it creates. So like you're saying with photography, with YouTubing, even with teaching, with your workshops and, and all, the, all the rest of it, you, you do all of it because you love the process of it. 100% that is so true. And, and that's why I think the people who are on YouTube, no, no one sort of falls into a huge success on YouTube because it doesn't really happen. It takes a lot of work. Like you say, exactly the same. With photography as well and and with photography with wedding photography especially you know we're going out we're, we're shooting for one day maybe it might take i know that you're a demon when it comes to your workflow it takes me say three or four days maybe to back to, to finish and edit that wedding and that is hard because you're just sat there on a laptop you you, you I'm, I'm easily distracted but you know it's, it's it's quite hard graph to do that and if you were doing that, however many weddings you shoot, you know, 25, 30 times a year, and you didn't love it, you would get burnt out and become bored of, of that within weeks, I reckon. So you have to love it. And it's that love which sees you through. And it's exactly the same for YouTube, that YouTube is a grind. Like, it's like each week I put out a video, knowing at the moment it, they're not doing anywhere near as well as they were a year ago. But I've almost come to think I don't care about that because I'm I'm enjoying what I'm producing and I'm getting nice comments back from it and that's that's enough. I'd almost say, which again I know is a cliche, it's that bit of a excuse my friends, that bit of a wanky thing to say. But I would still make the videos if if I was getting a tenth of the people watching because I love the process of it. It's also something like it's it's about capturing things again. This gets all very deep and 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 psychological. I know that. You're one of the best photographers I know for, for taking pictures, I know you deny this, of your own family. And you're creating moments. And it must be something in you, which is I need to record this. It's like there's, there's a need in photographers to, to, to create these sort of visual memory boxes that we, we and then it's like we capture that moment in time. It's like, and then we back that up and it's safe. It's locked away. And there's something in me that, that has always felt the need to do that. Like I'll photograph all sorts of rubbish on my phone because I need to capture it, not because it's a good picture. It's I need to keep that thing uh, in some sort of system, in, and I can look back on that in in years to come. So it's not even to do with the photograph; it's to do with the memory. And YouTube is similar. That if I like, I went out last last week, did a, an engagement shoot at Durdle Door. It was really cool. I can't imagine doing that now without capturing it in some form in a video now. And that's not because the couple want it. It's not because I think it's going to do really well for views or anything like that. It's because I'm thinking, I'm going to enjoy looking back on this in 10 years. And that, again, is something that's deeper inside me that is not about the views. It's about this need to, to capture things and then look back on them. 
And um, that's that's what really sort of like gets me. So that to answer your question, it's, it, it's like there's a love of it. There's a need to do that that sees me through. It's not because I want to become in, or Instagram or YouTube famous. It's not that at all. It's just, it's fulfilling a, a, a need that I think I have on some sort of deeper level. Listen. Massive thanks to Neil for this really deep insight into the creative process and the need to create for the sake of creating and preserving memories rather than the desire for attention that I think we're all guilty of needing at times. You can find Neil's work and information about his regular flash workshops at neilredfern.com as well as on Instagram, Facebook and YouTube. And make sure you come and see him at the Nine Dots Gathering. You can listen to previous episodes of the Dotcast anywhere you normally listen to podcasts. And to find out more about Nine Dots or to become a member and support our cause for a more community-led industry, head over to 9-dots.co. See you next time.